Great to have you here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's about your empowerment with knowledge so that you can save more and spend less and don't let anyone ever rip you off. I want to welcome you to another episode of our continuing series of Back to Basics, where it's pretty clear there are topic areas where I would give myself a C or lower and how I explain them on the air based on my report card is when I'm out and about and somebody asks me a question about something who is a regular listener to either our broadcast or podcast, and I realize by the questions, I haven't done as good or as thorough a job of explaining. And that's why back to basics. So what we're doing in this show is I'm going to address credit because of the areas I'm asked questions about, one that I'd say I have the most difficult time explaining is how you establish good credit, what makes up a good credit score. Because there's so many misperceptions. Number one is if you think that what you earn on a job has anything to do with your credit, forget it. What you do for a job has nothing to do with your credit. The factors that matter for your credit are pretty simple in how you're graded. And there are two that account for most everything you can really do something about. Number one, and this is with any scoring model, it skews in what I'm going to tell you, but I'm going to give you the exact percents that these things matter on the traditional, most recognized scoring model, and that's the FICO scoring model. Number one, accounting for 35% of what makes up your credit score, that is a number up to 850, is that you pay your bills on time each and every month. Or in reverse, if you don't pay your bills on time each and every month, you devastate that 35% of your score. So if you have a perfect payment history, you've never missed a payment, you've already got 35% of the way to a perfect credit score. Perfect. So... There you go. That's more than a third of what makes up a score. The other 30% is based on how much of your available credit you're using. This is a concept that sometimes I seem to do a good job at, and other times, well, not as good. So I want to explain this in a way that hopefully will make sense. So one of the things that the people that do the scoring model believe is that the more credit you use of the credit that's available to you, the more likely you are to default. The less of the available credit you have for you, the less likely you are to default. So That is why you'll hear me talk about utilization. 
And what is utilization? Simply, it means for the credit you have, how much of it are you using? So by credit you have means if you have a visa, you have a MasterCard, you have a Discover, you have American Express, or you have several visas, or you have just one card, whatever. What your credit limit or limits add up to, that is your available credit. So let's just keep it simple and say you have total available credit of $10,000. If you are using 3000 of that 10, you are considered to be neither good nor bad with the amount of credit you're using, and it's a neutral factor, if you will, on how you're graded as your risk of default. So 30 is the target, but also I would say that's the ceiling. It's very common that someone will have a utilization around 50%. And you'll think, oh, I'm fine. I'm only using half of the credit that's been made available to me. But you're past the comfort zone based on historical averages of when you're likely to wheeze on that credit and maybe get to a point where you can't make a payment on time. So 30% of your available credit is where you want to be. So in the example of $10,000 in credit, no more than $3,000 in use. And if you go above 50%, your credit score starts diving off a cliff. Because remember, just how you do that is 200 and, is it 255 points of your 850 is how much of your available credit you're using. Now, as you go below 30%, the people that are golden that have overall credit scores that are above 800, which is a very thin slice of people, they're using typically less than 10% of their available credit. And I want to explain something about uh, use of available credit. If you're in the group of people that, uh, gosh, there's so many stats on, but somewhere uh, maybe 35 40% of people pay their credit card bills in full every month, you may think your utilization is 0%. Uh-uh. The, the scoring model grades you on what your balance was that you're being billed for on your closing date. You have a grace period to pay it free of any interest, but your score is calculated on what that balance was when the statement closed. So people who want to get their score higher, especially when they're applying for a mortgage, will track their account online and pay the bill before it posts. So if your closing date on your statement is the 5th, you would pay what the outstanding balance was, let's say, on the 1st, where they receive it on the 1st, and then there's no doubt that most of that balance that you were going to pay in full after you got the bill that closed out on the 5th, you've already paid, and it turbocharges your credit score. So those are the two big factors, always making payments on time 
and keeping the percent of your available credit you use very low. The other three factors are all minor. You get penalized when you apply for new credit, but it's a very small hit. And the length of your credit history accounts for 15% of your score, the third biggest factor besides utilization and paying on time. And so the more credit history you have you can be judged on, you get like bonus points for that. And then the only other factor is the mix of credit. So as an example, that harms me. I only have credit cards. No car loans, no home loans. I mean, I don't do car loans. And as for mortgages, I haven't had a mortgage in forever. So the only thing I can be graded on is credit cards. And because I don't have a complete mix, I will never be able to get to a perfect credit score. That's okay. As long as you take care of those first two big factors, your score, like mine, will be just fine. Oh, one other thing I should say is when I refer to credit score, credit score, credit score, it's a point I don't emphasize enough. There is no one credit score. There is no one credit scoring model. All you're getting, it's like taking your temperature. You know there's one number, 98.6. But with credit scores, it doesn't work where there's only one thermostat thermometer taking your temperature. There are many different thermometers, but the same score is the best score. 850 is the equivalent to 98.6 with a thermometer. I'd like for you to set up credit monitoring and review of your score and your report for free with Credit Karma and Credit Sesame. You do these things, you're able to track it, they'll guide you how to improve your score, and just remember, first rule always, pay every bill every month on time. And now it's time for your questions about credit. Albert joins us now on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Albert. Hey, Clark, how are you? Great, thank you, Albert. What's going on in your world? Well, I was listening to you talking about credit, and I know that you'd mentioned that um, available credit to use credit, if you can keep the ratio under 30%, that you're doing well. Under 10%, you're doing great. That is right. What I was wondering is, should I be pushing my credit card companies to continually increase my limit so that that uh, denominator gets bigger and bigger? 100% yes. If you can get through credit review and different credit issuers, different banks and credit unions have evaluation cycles that you can request a credit review for a possible limit increase every six months or every 12 or 18, you know, it's typically 6, 12 or 18, and they'll tell you when you call up, you know, am I eligible for a credit limit increase this time, then you positively want to do that. Because I have, I have one card that is for a particular retailer. It's a MasterCard, but it's issued for a particular retailer. And I cannot get them to raise my limit. So I have to be very careful using the card because it has an extremely low credit limit. So in your case, 
if you can get limits raised, that will definitely be a help to your score. How many cards do you have right now, Albert? Well, I've got five cards. That's plenty. That's a good number. You know, when I was in college, they were handing out free T-shirts, so I would, you know. (laughs) The T-shirts are gone, but you still have the credit. But I still have the credit. Um, Would that in any way hurt me later on once I've pushed that credit card to give me the most available credit if I want to apply for another mortgage? Oh, what a great question. A mortgage is the only time I ever hear from anyone that having available credit becomes a problem instead of a benefit. Occasionally, a mortgage underwriter will be worried that with the available credit you have that you could get in over your head with a mortgage added in, but if you're showing a very low utilization rate on your credit, I would be surprised if that became an issue. Okay, great. Thank you. All right, and best to you. And what ratio are you at now? What percent available are you using? Um, I'm under 30, but I'm not yet under 10, but I'm working on it. Well, but under 30, you've already got a great credit score, don't you? Yes. No, it's pretty good. Yeah, so it'll just get better from here the lower your utilization goes. Will is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Will. Hi, Clark. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Well, great to have you here, Will. You have a suggestion about something that I'm not really thrilled when people have them, but you've come up with a way to make them thrilling? (laughs) Yes. Yes, yes. I have friends who uh, do a lot of electronics work, and every once in a while they run into a supplier that has a weird-looking or an odd-looking or a eh, questionable website, and they have decided that the simplest way to be safe in ordering parts from that is to go out and get a Visa gift card. That way it's anonymous. They can use that. It's not tied to their bank. It's not tied to their financial situation at all, and they can just use that card. The only drawback is they have to know a little bit ahead of time as to approximately how much the item is going to cost them. So the idea being that if somebody turned out to be dishonest and they were going to try to loot their uh, their account by doing all kinds of charges to the credit card, is that all they would be able to get access to is the money that's on that gift card. Yes. They're isolated. It's uh, not tied. They go one step further. They even go to a bank where they have neither had have either never had dealings or have closed accounts. So they can't even find another account at the same bank where they buy the uh, gift card. Now, the only downside to this, I will tell you there is one downside, and that is that if you buy something with a credit card and it's not delivered to you, you have the right to dispute the charge, and you generally, not always going to win, but you're usually going to avoid the loss on that item. If you use a gift card, gift cards don't have that protection under law. It's considered to be almost like an alternative form of cash. Mm-hmm. I had heard you say that. I had forgotten that. So that one part of uh, you would lose whatever money the dishonest seller absconds with from the card, but there wouldn't be any other money at risk. That's probably, in most cases, an acceptable risk. Yeah, and that's the thing. You know, when we're doing business with strangers sight unseen, it's all about gauging the proper mix of risk that we're willing to take on. 
Mm-hmm. And there's a website that I buy from from time to time that is uh, it's not the the best in customer service. And so I make sure I never buy expensive items there because I know I'm going to get burned from time to time, even though they have great deals. Mm-hmm. So it's all about figuring out what is an acceptable level. It's the rule I have with eBay, too, about how much I'll buy on eBay, never more of an expense than what I might lose sleep over. I'm so glad you're with us here on this special hour of the Clark Howard Show broadcast and podcast as we continue our Back to Basics series. And the idea of this is to dig into a topic that we talk about from time to time, both in what I say at the top or bottom of a broadcast or podcast, and in the questions I get that I respond to. If you're just tuning in, prior I was talking about how the whole cycle of credit works, how you develop a credit score, how you improve a credit score, what are the things that will devastate your credit score. And so now I want to do a payoff for you because, as I said, the key variable for most people with credit is how you're doing with credit cards. Now, other things figure in, but you know, paying every month on time and using a low percent of your available credit is key. So now comes the question, as Capital One would say, what's in your wallet? How do you decide what card to carry? So you have to start with the decision tree. Decision number one. Are you paying balances in full each and every month? Or do you run balances on cards each and every month? A lot of times, if you're running balances, you intended to not do that. But life happens, and you're running balances on cards. That's why in an unusual part of human behavior, when I ask somebody who's wheezing on credit card debt, what they're, how much they owe on credit cards, and what their interest rates are, overwhelmingly, people can't answer either of those questions for me. Or they can answer one, not the other. Because remember, the psychological thing was you never intended to run a balance on credit cards, to be in debt on credit cards. So when you think back to basics, if you are running a balance... Your job is to make sure you have the best interest rate you can possibly have on that balance, with the ultimate goal, wiping out that balance. But remember, most people don't know what interest rate they're paying, even though it's right on the statement you get every month, and the average interest rate is high teens, somewhere around 17 18%. Nobody ever got rich paying Visa or MasterCard 17% interest. Not going to happen. So you want to reduce the interest rate hit because that is the key variable that affects how you're going to do with getting rid of that debt because every dollar you pay when you're running a high interest rate, you got way too much of that dollar 
going to interest and not to paying down the balance. So I love credit unions. And if you're running a balance on a high interest rate credit card, almost always the best place to turn to lower that rate is a credit union. Credit unions are owned by and they're there for their members. You join one, you're one of the members they're there for. And so credit unions often offer interest rates that are about a third lower than what the typical bank charges. But sometimes if your credit score is good but you're running a balance, you'll be able to get an interest rate from a, from a credit union on a credit card that will be below 10%. And that's the target to shoot for. In addition, you may from time to time receive a balance transfer offer where you can balance transfer a high interest rate card to one that has an interest rate holiday or a very low rate for a significant period of time, usually 6, 12, or 18 months. Now, the balance transfer offers work fine. You may, with most of them, have to pay an upfront, like a prepayment of interest charge, like a balance transfer fee that often will be 4% of the balance. But if you're on a straight line to pay it off during the interest rate holiday, then a balance transfer offer can work great. But if you know you're going to need to use cards as a borrowing mechanism, you know that's part of what happens with your life, maybe because of your work cycle or you're an independent contractor who gets reimbursed for expenses on a delayed basis and you're going to run balances, your whole goal needs to be getting the lowest ongoing interest rate card you can. And again, going back a step, that almost always is going to be at a credit union. Now, I want to address if you do pay balances in full. There was a really great story in the Wall Street Journal recently about how most people who have an airline card from American United or Delta are throwing their money away having a credit card from one of those three. And the reason is, as I've talked about with you before, is that unless you are a high charge volume person who flies that airline at least once every four to six weeks, you will not earn enough points to make it worth having that card. And the volume of charge you're looking for is north of $5,000 a month plus the travel of once every four to six weeks on that airline. If you can't meet those two criteria, then the annual fee for one of the airline cards from American United and Delta will not pay off for you. Now, there is a wild card in there with those three. And that is, if you're someone who checks bags routinely and you travel three or more times a year, you may break even or a little better having the airline tie-in credit card that waives a baggage fee, typically for the first bag you would check on one of the big three full fare airlines. Well, I call them big three. There's only three full fare airlines on those three. Otherwise, the airline cards don't make sense. 
So what does make sense if you love travel, but you don't meet those criteria I laid out, for you to look at one of the travel cards that you earn points that can be used to buy a ticket on any airline. And these have become increasingly popular where you're a free agent. Or look at the cards for JetBlue or Southwest. Because with those cards, the annual fees are lower and the ability to earn rewards better. And Southwest card, by people that are really into this, is generally the one that has the highest ratings because of the ease of earning free travel on the Southwest Airlines visa. But my preference still for most everybody except the ultra-frequent flyer, ultra-high charger, is for you to get, if you're into the travel thing, get one of these free agent kind of cards that are issued by multiple issuers where you earn points like Chase and and, uh, Capital One are really big into the mileage cards that you earn on any airline. And Barclays has been a more recent entry into that. But for most people who pay their balance in full and don't run big balances, and particularly if travel is not a high priority for you, a straight cashback card is best. My two favorite have not changed over the last few years. That's the city double cash card that effectively pays you 2% cash back and the Fidelity Investments 2% cash back card where the money goes into an investment account, a college savings account, or a Roth IRA. Those two cards, no games, no gimmicks, just 2% cash back. That is a very high effective earning rate. And for most people, we'll beat the cards that say, oh, well, this quarter, we're going to give you this much on groceries, and next quarter, we're going to give you this much on going to overpriced drugstores, and this next quarter, we're going to give you this big reward on your cell phone bill if you pay it with the card. Uh Uh-uh. For most people, our lives are too busy for that kind of thing And a simple, straight cashback reward is absolutely king of the jungle, is what I recommend, because it is a jungle of all these cards and trying to figure out what's best. And your life changes. The patterns change in your life. The card that was best two years ago may be and also ran now, not because the card necessarily changed its rewards, But your life changed. Your circumstances changed. And the card you should carry, it's like the thing when people break up with somebody. It's not you. It's me. It's about me. I want you to think that way about the card. Don't have a psychological connection to a card. This is money we're talking about. And you go to the one that's best. But remember, burn your points before you can a card because otherwise you'll forfeit your points when you can that card. And now it's time for more of your questions about credit. 
Brenna is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Brenna, you're in grad school. What are you studying? Hi, I'm studying pharmacology. Ah, so what does that mean you'll be a pharmacist or is it something beyond no, that? No, it's, it's a PhD and I'm getting a joint degree in an MD program as well. So I'll be a doctor. Wow. So you're a brainiac, uh-huh. basically. <laughs> well, maybe. <laughs> so that is relevant to your question, which is you're trying to figure out how to establish credit. Is that right? Right. So I have one credit card and I don't have any student loans. Um, So I have one credit card that I got two years ago through my bank, um, and it is a college card. And that's the only thing that I have basically right now getting me credit. Um, You need to get another card. Yes, and I I need to figure out what kind of card to get. Well, just another major credit card. Are you getting solicitations in the mail with credit card offers? No, I'm not. And I think that is because my credit history is... apparently not sufficient. Well, I Um, want you to figure that out by going to a website called Credit Karma. Right. I've been there, yes. And what kind uh, of score did that indicate you had? It doesn't have any history showing up for me yet. No. Yeah. And you got this college card from a traditional bank? I did, yes. That is weird that they're not reporting. Yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't know, I just like don't know how long it takes to, before I get a score. Should be almost, is it even showing up as an open credit line on Credit Karma? It just says it can't find information about me when I try. Ooh, that's not good. All right, I'd like you to go to a website called annualcreditreport.com. Okay. And there for free, you'll be able, in this case, I want you to pull all three of your credit files. Okay. And see if that account is reporting on any of them if it's not you're going to have to get another credit card maybe as a grad student not as automatic but as a um, a student card as well hopefully that one will report that is the weirdest thing that that first card is not reporting that's very odd jamie joins us on the clark howard show hi jamie Hi, Clark. It's an honor to speak with you today. Well, great to have you here. You have a question about your business. Yes, sir. Uh, You always suggest that we uh, use personal credit cards for business transactions because the added consumer protection there and I guess the lack of consumer protection on the business card. But my question to you is, does that not pierce the corporate veil? Everything I've been told is you have to keep all your personal financial things completely separate from any business. That is a fantastic question. Almost without exception, if you get a business credit card in the terms of your application for it, they pierce the corporate veil and you are personally held liable in addition to the corporation. Okay. Would that not open you up to open up the, I guess, the veil for other things unrelated to the credit card? If you were sued by someone, could they say, hey, Oh, sue you personally? Well, no. So you have the corporate entity, and when you're doing business in the corporate entity, the corporation is the shield for you. Using a credit card as a payment system does not change that issue of the purpose of having a corporate shield. 
Try to give me an example, and let me see if I can get my arms around it if I'm missing a blind spot or something. I was just told that, you know, you had to keep everything separate because if you were ever sued, they would go back and look at all your accounting and your registers and look for anything where you're uh, doing business as yourself versus doing it as the business. And oh, that oh, that is it. that is a very interesting thing. That's why people always sign everything that they do as whatever their title is instead of just exactly. That's what instead I was of just thinking. Jamie. You would say Jamie, comma president or Jamie, comma owner or whatever it is that you always represent yourself as the officer of the business entity and not Jamie, the human being. Correct. And I know of no reason why having a credit card, as long as all you ever put on it are business expenses and the bill is always paid by the business, that would not in any way pierce that corporate veil for how you do business otherwise. Okay, great. Thank you for the information. So, and, and by the way, there are people who say that I'm way too extreme on this. And I had a caller recently who said, well, his credit card issuer offers the same protections in writing for a business card as they do for a consumer card. And if one does, that's fine. But you want to know a little trick? You got to hear this. You know, sure. if you have a personal card, the interest rate cannot be raised on an existing balance except in rare rare circumstances like you defaulting on a business card if you're running a balance the credit card company can raise interest rates on you at any time and raise them retroactively so it's beyond just the issue of liability you're listening to the clark howard show I appreciate you spending part of your day with us here on The Clark Howard Show. I want you to know that if you need consumer advice, we're here to serve you off-air for free, nine hours a day. If you go to Clark.com and go down the home screen, you'll see a section, Consumer Help and Tools. Click on Consumer Action Center, and you can get that free off-the-air advice.